Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I just had the great pleasure of talking with Nicholas Harkness about his new book, Songs of Soul, an ethnography of voice and voicing in Christian South Korea. This came out in 2014 with the University of California Press. I'll get this right out there at the beginning. I loved this book. It was both really innovatively structured, really carefully researched, and also just very inspiring. So the book looks at the human voice, and it looks at the human voice as a mode or a medium of communication, as an object of cultivation, and as a tool or an emblem of ethno-national advancement for Protestant Christians in Korea. In South Korea, specifically. Over the course of the book, Harkness introduces us to a number of people who are individually both voicing and also considering histories of the voice in this context of the relationship between tradition and modernity, the relationship between abroad and home, and the idea of what it means to be Korean in the modern world. It's a fascinating study if you're interested in modern East Asia, if you're interested in ideas and theories and practices of the voice and voicing, and if you're interested in, more broadly, what it can look like to create a sensory archive for an object and the study of an object like the voice. So it's really fascinating on all of those levels. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it was really a pleasure to talk with Nick about it. So I hope you enjoy the book. I hope you have a chance to read it, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. We're here today to talk with Nicholas Harkness about his book, Songs of Soul, an ethnography of voice and voicing in Christian South Korea. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Nick, and thanks very much for being here with me today, um, for being willing to talk with me, and also for navigating and negotiating a pretty dramatic uh, time difference um, in the two places where we're in right now. So thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So, Nick, could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? And specifically, how did you come to start working on the ethnography of modern Korea? Um, I think it's, now I've listened to a, a few of your um, interviews, and I realize that, that each interviewer has to, interviewee has to figure this out a little bit, because the story can either be really long or really short. Um, uh, so I'll try somewhere in the middle. Um, basically, uh, I came to South Korea uh, as a kind of accident, really, I think as many many people do, and, uh, either through some sort of chance or, or, or side interest. I um, When I came to graduate school, I really just had an overriding interest in the in the study of um, the human voice, and uh, I had been singing for a number of years, uh, in some semi-professionally, but mostly just taking private lessons. And um, I had just uh, developed a kind of increasing intellectual interest in the problem of the human voice and speech and song and the body and sound and these various other things that I discuss in the book. Um, but I had not. Um, settled on Korea as a place to do research. In fact, when I applied to graduate school, Korea was not even on the radar. It was not in my application. I had never been to Korea, South Korea. I'd never, I didn't learn any Korean. Um, I'd been a German major as an undergraduate. Uh, and upon gra- graduating from um, uh, my undergraduate university, I uh, pretty much knew I wanted to do a PhD and some graduate work, but I didn't um, think it was going to be in German literature. So I had to... Um, I, spend some time thinking about what I wanted to do. I spent some time working and singing. And when I came to graduate school, I recalled uh, an event um, that took place uh, a couple of years prior to starting, which was that I had auditioned for um, conservatories in Germany and not um, been accepted. Um, But I recalled that those who had been accepted were mostly Korean, or it felt like they were mostly Korean. Um, And when I went to sort of look at some of the statistics and talk to people 
about uh, Korean singers and European-style classical music and their presence in conservatories and on opera stages, I realized there were quite a few of them. And so in about two weeks before I started graduate school, I um, kind of uh, – you have one of these interview meetings. That was at the University of Chicago, and you come in and you, you say more or less uh, whether or not you're going to do the same kind of work you proposed in your um, – uh, your application. And I said, well, maybe something in Europe or maybe something in Latin America where I'd studied uh, some language. Um, and then I said, well, maybe Korea. I've never been and I don't speak Korean, but this is what I think is going on. And everyone supported it. So I walked down the hall and I signed up for Korea. That's amazing. And that's amazing that they were so supportive um, at that stage of just starting Korean at the beginning of your graduate program. I think that's fabulous. Well, it, it's fabulous. I wouldn't necessarily advise it. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, you know, and I may still be dealing with some of that now um, in terms of uh, your preparation for the field and your preparation for a field like Asian studies, which is enormous and um, uh, requires so much training and so much comparative training and so much history and so much language. Uh, I didn't really quite know what I was getting into. And uh, I'll say I, I was, I wouldn't have I think, had the same kind of training at another university. I think the University of Chicago, where I did my PhD, was the perfect place for this project and for me. That said, uh, they encourage real uh, kind, of, uh, kind of, let's say, theoretical innovation and, um, uh, and are still pre preserve in some sense the anthropological tradition of going to the field and learning. Right when you go uh, and preparing as much as you can before you go, and so um, at least when I was there. So in that sense, it was it was it was fitting with the tradition of I think the the, the department, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But again, now seeing Asian studies from the other side, it's it's such an, an enormous task to do this kind of work. I'm not sure I'd advise it for everyone. I had a similar experience um, when I started grad school, and I completely sympathize. Um, but I can say the book itself is fabulous. And so whatever you did, just keep doing whatever you're doing and encourage ah. students to do whatever you did because it's fabulous. Oh, thanks. So the book itself, um, which is what we're here to talk about, is an ethnographic study of the voice in South Korean Christian culture. And it opens up, um, at the same time, both the spaces and the practices of South Korean Christianity and Christian cultures, and also, more broadly, the embodied practices of voice more generally. And so it really contributes at the same time to a number of different fields, but certainly um, to not just this intersection, but also to how we understand the ethnography of South Korea and of Christian cultures there, and also how we understand and think with ideas and practices of voice and voicing. So you've talked a little bit already about how you came to this topic. Mm -hmm. um, how? So you worked on this as your dissertation project, and it That's right. was transformed into a book. So why don't we then talk a little bit about that transformation? And specifically, were there any major changes in either the way you were conceptualizing the kind of work that the book was doing in the shape of the project, or any major um, transformations from one form to the other? Well, sure. I think, honestly put... Um the biggest transformation it picks up on what I was just saying to start from a kind of theoretical uh, standpoint, an analytical challenge to figure out um, to figure out how to go from the question about what what is the voice or what should it be or how should we talk about it. There 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 had been some uh, plenty in some sense research on this in in, in ethnomusicology and in, in anthropology, um, but I had I had some other ambitions about what to do with it and how to do with it, uh, what to do with it and how to proceed with it. So uh, the biggest challenge was to move from that kind of question to one that was really, really engaged, I think, with uh, not only with the field of Korean studies, but a broader field of Asian studies and also, um, I think, just a general readership. And I think that last point is what um, many people, uh, when they go from dissertation to book, have to deal with, you know, what to move to the footnotes and how to reformulate so that, you know, people who might not be interested in the topic find themselves interested in it, so on and so forth. But I think the biggest challenge for me was to move from a kind of uh, theoretical analytical orientation to one that was uh, not necessarily more ethnographic, because that was all there, but one that was speaking, I think, to to some of the core concerns of, of my colleagues, um, from uh, Korean studies to Asian studies to general anthropology, history, even sociology. And I think the I was really, really grateful to have a Korea Foundation postdoc 
um, and to spend it a year with Nancy Abelman at the University of Illinois, where she uh, read the manuscript and worked with me um, to transform it in that direction and also uh, to work with her students there who were steeped in Korean studies um, in, in ways that I had not been. So that, for me, I think was, at least in terms of content, was the biggest uh, the biggest shift. Um, I, I guess I'll say one more thing, which is just in terms of your your press and your um, um, your reviews and getting the book from not only from dissertation to manuscript, but also from manuscript to book. Um, yeah, I think as everyone will say, it can be quite challenging. And uh, I, I went to a couple of different presses. I won't go into too much detail. I, I landed with University of California Press, which is exactly where I should have been from the beginning. And um, it was a great experience. But one of the things people have to keep in mind is, you know, not only meeting the the, the expectations of, of a certain press um, or your reviewers, but really kind of holding on to some sort of core of the book that you you know it should be should be preserved that you know there's some sort of spark there or some sort of uh, uh, central um, uh, idea or set of ideas that need to be preserved. And sometimes reviewers will want you to go, not just to change something in terms of this bit of content or that bit of writing or this this structure, but sometimes people are looking for a different kind of book and you have to confront that and decide (laughs) whether or not you're going to change it or you're not going to change it, you know. That's right. I mean, which means it really becomes a process of figuring out. I mean, no, no pun intended. What your voice is. What your voice is. Scholar, right. And Precisely. What needs to be preserved. Yeah, exactly. So the book itself opens with a ser- one of, and the first really of what become a series of encounters between bodies, encounters between bodies that are eating, that are crying, that are talking, that are singing, that are um, pooping and drinking water coming from what other people are pooping. I mean, all kinds of (laughs) fascinating things in terms of embodiment are happening with the book. And we're going to get to many of those, I hope, in the course of our hour. But it opens with a bowl of stew. It opens with your having a bowl of stew in Seoul with a soprano and church choir director. And this brings us into the larger context that you introduce here in the introduction, which is this context of some of the major arguments and major concepts of the book. Now, the book looks carefully at European-style classical singing in Korea as a Christian form of vocal practice. So there are many individual elements to that which sounds like a very brief description that we're going to unpack and explore over the course of our conversation because all those elements turn out to be really important. And they're embodied in this term that you introduce at the outset. Um, and forgive me for mispronouncing everything. I'll just say that at the outset. I mispronounce my own name sometimes, as my students will tell you. Um, so I'm going to give it a shot. Songak. Is that? Uh, song, song Ak. Song Ak. Okay, yeah. perfect. Thank you. So Song Ak. This is one of the major concepts in the book, and it comes up right at the beginning. So let's start then at the beginning. What is Song Ak, and what, um, how would you describe this for listeners who've never heard this before? What's important to understand about the meaning of Song Ak at this early stage in order to follow the story of it through the book? Songak really just means vocal music. In general, in Korea, in my in my understanding and findings, songak really refers to uh, a kind of European style traditional classical singing. So if you, it's the unmarked form of trained singing, you might say. If you engage, enroll in songakwa in the university, the department of songak, you're studying vocal classical music. Otherwise, you're you're studying traditional singing or jazz, perhaps, or something like that. Um, so songak is important in this book because what I found was this type of singing, uh, preserving in some sense an earlier European model, but this type of singing is um, directly related to Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, although to some extent Catholic, um, because the vast majority of the people who sing it, who study it, who teach it, who have careers in it are are Protestant Christians, and the vast majority of Protestant Christians here um, are really evangelical Christians in, in, uh, in a real sense. Great. Thank you. And that becomes a really important part of this story. So the book is about song ak. Um, it's about voice, but it's also about, on a number of different levels, an aesthetic of progress. So this is this incorporates both Christian progress more broadly and also an idea of national progress, which is achieved, among other ways, and we'll get into this, um, by purifying the nation of kind of unclean elements of the past. And that purification um, is also a purification 
function of the voice. And so there's really, really interesting ideas of progress that the book uses Song Ak and uses the voice and voicing to explore. Now, one of the questions explored in the introduction um, is a question that seems really simple, but it's actually quite profound, and you take us through this, and that is, what is the voice as an ob object of ethnographic study? What does it mean? What does it look like? And what, it, what does it involve to do a study and for you to do your study of the voice? To explore this, you bring us into and you suggest um, a notion of what you call a phonosonic nexus. So can you talk about that a little bit? What is a phonosonic nexus and how does it get us into your particular, um, as, as, as an author, your particular goal in treating the voice as you do here in the book? Uh, sure. I, I, um, that also was a kind of accidental um, conceptualization. And, and when I look at it now, it seems kind of simplistic, right? You have a kind of nexus of duality. It's whatever, you know, there are many concepts that sort of claim to do this. And so it's not a it's not a kind of ontological um, assertion about the voice, what the voice is. But I think, as, as you put it, what ought it to be to proceed to be able to study all of this embodied and expressive practice, all of this link, these links between speech and song, between the notions of a concrete manifestation of person in speech and song, and then something like a, a metaphor of a voice um, that stands for personhood or identity or perspective, that these things constantly get mo uh, mobilized uh, in our work, and we use them in everyday speech, um, newspaper articles and whatnot. Um, so when I came to the phonosonic nexus, it was really just a way of talking about how, about actually making, uh, let's say, an, to analytically useful the more common observation that bodies are mobilized as sound uh, in everyday social practice, um, and but not to just reduce it to that observation. That is an observation. It's a very interesting one, um, but it doesn't get us very far. It's just an observation. So how to mobilize it analytically such that your data, when you're collecting it out in the field, whether it's utterances or talk about utterances or abstract structures of utterances, wherever you're working, um, allow you to to um, consider vocalization um, not just as bodies making sound, uh, but as, uh, let's say, um, multimodal semiotic um uh, ways of in engaging socially with the world. And it, it was just simply a, a way of saying there's a processual connection between what we're calling sound and what we're calling making sound, and then all of the extensions of those two um, categories, whether they be bodily or uh, whether they be resonating out in the world or whether they be mediated or amplified, uh, whether they be highly complex in terms of um, uh, phonology or whether they be rather sim simple in terms of just a single vo voice quality like rough versus smooth or something like that. And coming from this or um, to take, using this as a point of departure, it allows us to begin here exploring some of the many spaces that you encounter the voice and that you show us um, an encounter with the voice through the course of the book. And these spaces and these forms of evidence, these media through which you're collectively amassing an archive of the voice include actual singing voices, include what people are saying about voices, what they're writing about voices, photographs of vocal cords, um, graphs and visual representations of units of sound, and they also include your own exploration of the kinds of vocal training and vocal social environments that you're exploring in the book. So your ethnographic research, as you describe it early on in the book, includes voice lessons, includes singing with a choir at one of the churches that becomes a really important space for the story of the book, and it also includes attending classes at Seoul National University's Department of Voice. And so the spaces and the media through which we encounter voice um, are multiple and form a really, really rich archive here that by itself is really fascinating, let alone uh, looking at the story that you're using it to tell, which is also really fascinating. So let's get to it. Okay, thanks. So the, the um, book is separated into two parts, and part one looks at different vocal practices and their associated moral contexts in Christian South Korea. 
chapter one is an introduction to the major themes and major concepts of the book. And you take us into three moments in this first chapter where you're exploring the larger question, what's the relationship between a change of sound and a change of meaning? Now, these three moments include a taxi ride to the airport. They include discussions of crying in the context of narratives of advancement, in the context of performing song. But they also include a really fascinating conversation with Kim Yong-mi, a soprano and professor of voice at the Korea National University of the Arts. This is a moment where you're bringing out the different kinds of song, the different kinds of voicing that are embodied in this temporal dimension of South Korea as a nation, as a space of tradition and modernity, in the figure of a single body of a single woman driving a car. So can you bring us into that moment um, for us? What's going on in this conversation with Kim Yong-mi, and what happens when she tries to sing the Chindo Arirang? Um, well, we had, um, as I describe it in that chapter, and I've lectured on this some, when we we met, and you know, she is the most famous, I, you, I mean, and now things have changed since I've written the dissertation, or the book, <laughs> so it, 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 we're in a different time frame, but she was at the time really the most famous opera singer, Korean opera singer residing in Korea. There are uh, others outside of Korea, who like Cho Soo-mi or Hong Hye-kyung, some of these more famous, um, let's say, international stars, but Kim Young-mi really is known in Korea as having... Um, one of the most, the, the best technique, most beautiful voices, and also a kind of staying power that she's able to sing in Korea for decades, uh, preserving the kind of qualities. And, and, and also she's, she's devoutly Christian. Um, and she and I met to discuss, uh, uh, basically this issue. And this was still somewhat, um, early on, so I wasn't totally focused on the, the aspect of religion, although it was present, but really about technique. And so we've been talking about technique and these, she was sharing hilarious stories. We met at the Seoul Grand Hyatt on, on a mountain in the center of town. And she was telling, telling these hilarious stories about, you know, what her students did and when they made mistakes and what Pavarotti said to her when she went to go sing for auditions and how other singers would tremble when she would walk in because she was winning all the auditions. I mean, she's, she's, I mean, she's a, she's a, a, a larger than life character and she's everything, you know, a, a famous opera singer should be. And she's really gracious and, and kind, very smart and quick and funny. So we had had this great conversation. Uh, her daughter was also there. We were, we had relaxed after an hour, hour and a half of chat and, she offered me a ride down the hill, and at that time, a, a friend and colleague of mine was going to take me uh, to Jindo, which is a small um, uh, island in the south um, uh, southwest of, of, of Korea, actually where the ferry uh, just overturned. That's very close to, to um, Jindo. And I was going to, to listen to these farmers sing, and Jindo and the whole South Chola province is known for its kind of intense food and it, the pansori singing, which you probably will talk about, um, sets up a kind of, uh, a kind of alterity or other to the, to songak. It's a kind of vocal style that sounds very sad relative to songak, which at least in, uh, in terms of the body sounds happier or at least, uh, less, uh, full of suffering. And, um, so I mentioned this to her and she said, well, um, you have to eat their food. And also, do you know this song, the Jindo Arirang and the Arirang is a famous uh, kind of set of folk songs on a, on a familiar um, uh, uh, linguistic theme, Arirang, this term, this kind of opa opaque term. And I said, oh, sure. And she started to sing Ari Arirang. And I joined in Suri Suri Rang. And as we're coming down the mountain, then we're both singing And at that point, uh, we were kind of involved. She grabs her throat. Right at the day to day part. And, um, she says, I'm sorry, I cannot. And, um, it became clear at that moment and also actually putting all this data together that part of what was going on in her voice was also going on in my throat, um, was that there's this, this moment if you try and do what you hear people doing when they sing, sing the song, you, you feel some tickle or some tension or some, um, uh, 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 like when you, when you run and you're not used to playing soccer and you try and turn too quickly and you pull your knee or something like that. That's what you're feeling in your throat. It's not right. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a sense of, of a mistake, a bodily mistake. And in, in song singing, it is it is coded not only as a mistake, but detrimental to the voice itself. That is exactly what will make you lose your voice. 
Um, and so in that moment, as, as we're heading down the hill, she feels her throat, uh, uh, behaving in incorrect ways. I, and I, I did too. And, and that moment we're traveling up down this hill from this, um, um, pristine, uh, uh, kind of a hotel down into Itaewon, which is right next to the military base. And as I think I put it in the book, kind of reminds everybody of, of, of a really sad second half, also first half, but second half of the 20th century when, um, uh, American, you know, uh, soldiers were living in the space and uh, the 60s and 70s in that space were, as, as, as people put it to me, quite, quite dark times for uh, uh, urban Korea. And you talk about all three of these examples, um, the example of Kim, but also the other two examples in this context of, um, broadly speaking, an aspiration for a voice that doesn't sound like suffering. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that's something that I'm sure we're, we're going to continue to get into as we move through um, the points um, of departure um, further on in the book. What um, What is this style of voicing that is linked to the past, um, and how is that connected with ideas of suffering? Um, I suppose I started to uh, realize um, that the Songak voice and the role of this kind of classical style, European style, classical singing, could only be understood in terms, well, should, might be understood in terms of a, a narrative of, of progress and ethno-national transformation that um, is punctuated or at least shaped by um, a shift from something like a sentiment of suffering to one of celebration, um, joy. In, in part because the when people would hear everyday people, not necessarily Christians, not necessarily um, uh, singers, every, everybody that I would chat with would hear pansori, um, which is a kind of uh, elevated. Um, Oral, sung oral narrative that can last hours, which is a really high art form, although it was sung by traditionally, uh, uh, lower, uh, classes. Panzori and even just regular folk songs, when they would hear these songs, people would say, oh, that sounds really sad. At first, when you, when you chat with everyday, you know, people in South Korea, they say, oh, you know, you know, you know, of course, you know, Panzori and you know, Adidang and you know, these sort of national treasures. And then I would say, well, do you listen to it? And he's like, well, not so much. And I said, well, why not? And they're like, well, it sounds so sad. It sounds, it sounds like it hurts. And in large part, the training develops the vocal cords in such a way that it builds up some calluses. And it depends on who you're training with and what your tradition is. But this sound for many people became a kind of sound of roughness and sadness and a particular time in, in Korean history where sadness as a kind of aesthetic quality was cultivated. And cultivated in in the voice, and part of a, a kind of uh, auto ethnographic self narration of Korea's place in history, its moment of suffering. Um, the uh, and many and it's, it's, so you have a kind of almost variationist linguistics. That is, you have older speakers, older singers, who um, statistically sound vocally sadder, and part of that is. Uh, part of that is because uh, their voices sound like they're from the countryside. Part of that is because more people were working class and poor. Part of that is because of the traditional music. Depending on how you cut it, I mean, oldness and pastness for many people in the voice sounds um, rough. It sounds like the voice of hardship. And the, the Songok voice became a kind of point of aspiration for many of these people, especially Christians, to rid the body, rid the sound of the body of the sound of suffering the sound of vocal cords grinding together, the sound of um, vocal cords that had broken and bled to have preserved kind of almost the, the purity of the vocal cords from, from birth and just simply cultivated that pure power in the form of uh, operatic singing in general. Great. Thank you so much. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as well um, in a few moments. Now, before we get there and before the book gets there in more detail, we look at a chapter, chapter two, that treats the Christian narrative of progress in Korea and melds that with an exploration of the voice um, in different registers. So here you are taking us into two major events from 2008. One is the inaugural speech of a new um, president, Lee um, Myung-bak, um, who was also an elder at Somang Presbyterian Church, which is one of the major spaces of this city. Now he announces as a part of his speech that 
South Korea has reached the status of, as you call it, an advanced nation. And you juxtapose that with another speech. Um, this is a set of actually public protests that erupted months later after the inauguration against these government that have to do with, among other things, a concern with beef and with um, buying or allowing in beef from the U.S. Now, I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about this second um, set of voicings, these public protests, um, because you use this to introduce a character, or a, rather an actor, that's going to be important throughout this chapter. And this is the head pastor at Somang Church. Now, he gives a series of sermons that are criticizing the protesters here for discounting the role of Christian institutions in bringing progress to the country. Why is that important, and can you open that up for us in terms of the larger work that you're using this chapter to do as a, an exploration of voice and the ethnography of voice in this context? Absolutely. So uh, just as, as a bit of background, I came, I came to Korea just wanting to study voice, just wanting to figure out why these people sang so well. That's basically it. What is going on? How, did, how is this a, a kind of social uh, uh, fact in South Korea. And it took me a couple of years to figure out that it was so tightly linked with Christianity. And when I went to actually do the field work, I had in mind a number of different churches and doing a kind of comparative study of different churches, um, from Pentecostal churches where there may be songak singing, but it's not central part of the, of the liturgy. I mean, it's there, but it's not what people are there for, to something like, um, which is the Presbyterian church, a very intellectual, high-class church in Apkujang, a very wealthy neighborhood south of the river, one of the first developed um, uh, when people, when, when the city expanded south of the river in, in the 70s. Um, and basically, I settled in part, practically in part because of, of uh, Practically because I couldn't do all the research on all the churches I wanted to do, in part because Somang became so clearly the orientation point for the kind of story that I was hearing over and over again in terms of the voice and in terms of Christianity. This advancement to a kind of peaceful, prosperous, uh, beautiful present and uh, aiming toward an ever more peaceful, prosperous and beautiful future. Um, and that was that was manifest in the in in the in the worship service itself it was so vastly different from the kind of ecstatic prayer and um intense preaching one finds at the Yoido full gospel church and it was so different from the everyday scenes of of uh, street markets and vendors and and all uh, the the rural um the rural uh, uh um uh let's say villagers who had moved to the, to the city by, in, by the millions in the 60s and 70s, right? It was such a different picture. And it just so happened that in 2008, a couple of months after I arrived, Im Young-bak, who was an elder at this church, who had been mayor of Seoul, was elected president. He was elected president, and no great surprise, his inaugural speech was, well, we've spent the last 10 years with center-left governments, now we're going right, it's a time to stop talking about the worrying about the past and focusing on the past and focusing on the suffering. Now we are a sanjinguk, we're now an advanced nation. We are now an advanced nation. This is the start of our advancement right here. And one found the same kinds of sermons, content, or let's say uh, topics in the sermons of Kim Ji-chol, the, the pastor of Soman Church. Shortly after Im Young-bak took over, the government, uh, he had many problems going in uh, with stacking his cabinet full of you know, cronies and these kinds of things. But um, there was, uh, a, a, let's say, a false report about um, the safety of American beef that nonetheless produced enormous, um, enormous protests against Im Young-bak and his government regarding regarding beef, regarding how much he cared about the country, regarding his relationship to the U.S., regarding free trade, regarding tons of things that I couldn't really discuss here. But it's set up precisely, I guess it became a, 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 a just a perfect emblem of the two kinds of narratives that, that were clashing in the kinds of in the, in the voice itself and in what people thought about the voice, particularly from the Sangak perspective. And so um, the reason that this became part of the book was in large part to highlight that um, those two kind of competing narratives about what advancement and progress meant for South Korea relative to um, the hardships of the past. And the Christian narrative and the elite narrative, because every Christian narrative is not elite, but in this sense, the Christian narrative is an elite narrative of elite leaders and elite institutions guiding the way, you know. Um, and 
I use this to set up uh, an analysis of a sermon by Kim Ji Tel, the head pastor of Somang Church, where he's uh, at the at the height of the beach protest, voicing the different perspectives of Jesus versus the Pharisees, and one can see in the very voicings. Um, a kind of uh, parody of the Pharisees and a kind of idealization of Jesus through his vocalization itself. And it links up uh, very elegantly with uh, the not only the ideologies of voice at play, but also the actual practices of vocalization that I was finding in singing and speech elsewhere. And you really mean see. Um, you really mean see. There are actually, there's a spectrogram or there are spectrograms here that show, that visualize um, some of the voicings that um, Kim Chuchol is actually using as part of this sermon, which is fascinating. And this is one of the moments that really struck me as a reader um, that when I really realized what a fascinating and really multi-layered archive you're bringing to this project. So um, for scholars, for readers, for anyone who is interested in sound and what it can look like literally and figuratively to create a kind of sonic archive in many different forms and using many different media to look at and to listen to the ethnography of sound and soundscapes. Um, this is really a model for what that can look like. So it's a really fascinating part of the book. You, you really are looking at how his voice is heard literally, um, by how he's pronouncing certain words and using certain characters. So I love that. That's another way of putting that. I really love that part of the book. Um, so this brings us into a next chapter that I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about because we've actually all, already talked about some of this. This looks at the role of singing for Korean Christians as a kind of privileged form of social action, and it considers here the position of Song Ak at the intersection of singing and evangelism. Now, what it really goes into here in, in, a, lar in a large part of this chapter is precisely the kind of consideration of the physicality and the really the physical consequences of this suffering and of these sounds that are contrasted with Solak. So you bring us into stories of and experiences of voices making these more, you know, I'm using air quotes here, traditional sounds that you've talked about before, like tissue damage, um, like bleeding while uh, singing traditional songs, practices of trying to actually or um, mythically sing over waterfalls as a way to try to develop this kind of sound. Um, different, you look at different mouth shapes associated with different kinds of singing. So this is a really wonderful chapter for body historians and for people interested in reading about embodied history and body history. Of course, that's true of the whole book, but um, it's really true in a very visceral um, sense in this chapter. Now, I mention this so that we can move to a contrasting chapter, chapter four, where you're really looking at the qualities of Songak that are developed and understood in contradistinction to the kinds of qualities of the, the rough vocal cords of the kind of singing that I just talked about. And this is an aesthetic and an ethical quality called cleanliness. So we talk here about the qualities of cleanliness in the Song Ak voice, and this becomes important on many different levels. So to start us off here, can you talk about um, this a little bit? What are the qualities of a clean voice? What does it mean for your um, communities here that you're talking to, to talk about a voice as being clean? What is a clean voice? Um, it, it took me a while to settle on this kind of descriptive metaphor, um, if it really is a metaphor, but it's for, 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 for speakers, it's not generally a metaphor. It, it, the, um, and I had to figure out what that, what that was referring to when they heard someone's voice and they said, Oh, this is normal. It's, it's so clean. Um, I too thought something like that, you know, so I agreed in a way, but I didn't know quite why I agreed. I guess. And, uh, and so in conversation with people and having them, uh, listen to various kinds of singing from explicitly operatic to explicitly traditional Korean with scare quotes, as you put it, to, um, to all sorts of different kinds of, of, of singing, I realized that it's, it's settled pretty much on two things. One is a kind of absence of raspiness and breathiness, which is a sort of obvious one. And, and to, 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 to have a kind of vocal cords that are, are, 
uh, we take this also in scare quotes of perfectly aligning and passing just the right amount of air through so that you get a pure and focused sound without sounding like anything is squeezing or anything is rubbing or anything is letting some air through and some and creating sound if there are abrasions on the vocal cord. So instead of ah, it's ah, that would be the difference between unclean and clean. And the other thing is a kind of wobbly sound, which a lot of people, uh, younger singers, associate with older singers and also traditional music. That is, instead of a kind of naturally, again, scare quotes, occurring vibrato, you would hear a kind of forced vibrato, uh, 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 that kind of sound. So one is a, one is a, a function of the, qual- the, the surf- surface quality of the vocal cords, and one is a quality of the um, habituated muscle tension of vocal cords. And those two things together create, determine generally whether or not people um, hear a clean or an unclean voice. So you talk in this chapter about something that is going to continue to be important later on in the book, and that's the significance of study and work abroad in helping song ox singers develop this kind of clean voice. Um, and I think in the conclusion, you you put it in song ox singing, one can hear actually hear a topography of other countries depending on where abroad these singers have trained in order to develop this clean voice. Now you also in this chapter talk about cleanliness of the voice in its connection to ideas of hygiene, sanitation, and health, and concomitant notions of progress more generally. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that, because that's also a really important part of this story um, for readers who are interested in narratives of modernity, I think, and how they link up with the physicality and also narratives of the voice. Well, as I guess... Uh, I started uh, realizing just how often this term cleanliness was used to describe uh, speaking and singing voices. It also became, became clear to me that much of people's narratives of of South Korea's transformation from a kind of war-torn country to one um, that you might now encounter is around around issues of cleanliness um, and, uh, uh, let's say, the, the sanitation of the streets, but also of hygiene and, and various other things. And so I, it was, it gave me a chance to situate this, this metaphor which, of cleanliness of voice, which might just seem like a kind of convenient one, within a much, to really to anchor it within a sensuous history of, of South Korea, highly ideologized according to the, the, now, the here and now of the present. That is, we look around, we see clean streets before it was something else. Um, and people gave numerous examples, um, one of which you mentioned earlier was the uh, example of the notion of Panzuri singers, um, my, my uh, some informants and some colleagues will, will get upset for me for re- bringing up this topic again, but it came up in conversation so many times I can't I can't avoid it. Panzori, okay. <laughs> Pan, Panzori singers, and it wasn't just Panzori singers, but it came out through their their, their narratives. Um, the Panzori singers um, uh, consuming some of them consuming um, basically. Uh, if I can say it, shit water is the way it's been translated to me. The, the idea was that you had outhouses and you wrapped, um, uh, as I, uh, there are very versions of this, but basically when people are sick and their body is swollen up and they have a fever, um, uh, if you, you took uh, a piece of bamboo, wrapped it tightly in, in canvas or something like that, and left it in an outhouse for a long time. You took it out, uh, you unwrapped the bamboo. Inside, the bamboo would be just a very kind of clean, pure substance. You boiled that to get rid of any parasites. You drank it, and it would operate as a kind of uh, a medicine. And in, in, in various forms of, of, of uh, so-called traditional medicines, people use these kind of urine and, and, and feces and various other things to... Um, uh, uh, stimulate the immune system. But um, in this case, it gets narrated as people drank poop, exactly as you say, and, and we don't. And, that, and then that would become a kind of structuring narrative for the unclean voice and the clean voice, the suffering voice, and the non-suffering voice, the voice of the past, the voice of the present, so on and so forth. That's right. I mean, and, and as a historian of medicine, I have to just emphasize what you just said, which is this is something making medicines or making some sort of supplement out of what we consider to be excrement is something that you see all over the history of medical recipes and actually in a lot of um, cosmetic stores right now. It's not just something that's associated, right, with scare quote traditional uh, medicine, but it's actually, um, I mention this as well because it's a really interesting moment of this story that really speaks to, it's actually one of several moments 
elements in the story that speaks to the history of recipes and consumption and medicine in a way that might not be obvious to readers from the description of the book or from the uh, title, but that they might want to look especially at. And this comes up in chapter four. And I wish, just as you say that, I wish I had, um, I wish I had included a footnote explaining precisely what you just said. <laughs> that, would, that would be, that would have been just unfair to everyone that I, somehow I missed that. Even. <laughs> No, no, no. That's what this conversation's for, right? Um, so we move from here, as we move from chapter four to chapter five, we move to the second part of the book called the, socia- the Sociality of Voice. And this looks at the role of the voice in mediating social relations in Christian South Korea and looks at the different spaces in which that's, ha- that's happening. And so it's a really interesting um, set of studies of the production of space as well as the production of different incarnations of voice and voicing. Chapter five looks at how the lives of Christian singers in Korea are based in different institutions and a pair of institutions um, come up that's particularly important here and those are the institutions of the church and the university. This chapter shows a really enormous contrast between these two institutions and also talks about the challenges that that contrast poses for singers' voices as they move among them. So let's talk about just a couple of aspects of this as a way to bring out some of the really interesting things happening in this part of the book. You talk here about different models and structures of discipleship that a singer encounters in the church versus in school. Since this is so important for um, really shaping their experience as singers and their training as singers, could you talk a little bit about that? Um, What are these different models of discipleship and what's important for us to understand about that in order to understand what comes next, um, or rather the larger argument you're making in this part of the chapter? Uh, Sure. I guess the the two institutions I I compare... or at least I allow my informants to compare for me in this in this chapter or this the church and the school and it's school um, really especially in in the study of European style classical singing art instruments and so on and so forth there's a sense that um, to be a disciple a teja in in this institution is to basically submit oneself to the authority of the professor and then it's organized in terms of these lin- silos of lineage where one is always positioned in terms of rank. I mean, this is a sort of essentialization based on complaints, right, when I say this, but it's a sort of a lineage based on rank where one is always deferring to, and in some sense, passing gifts up to the, the professor, and the professor then provides um, uh, opportunities for, for career advancement um, from above. And in fact, there's now, a, there's now a Korean drama called Secret Affair, and that's how it's translated in English, it's called Mutue, precisely about the kind of corruption that I talk about in, in music departments generally and the, the problem of being a disciple of a professor in a university. And this is not to speak of all of them, absolutely. Um, but, but that there's a real problem in the university that has been, as I put in a footnote, one of my first informants was fired for extortion, um, uh, extorting her students' money. So that, that is the kind of complaint of the disciple in, in some of these institutions. Um, when they compare that with the church, the church is full of as many scandals as the school, if not more. Pastors are constantly being fired or asked to leave for various shady dealings. The pastor of the largest church in the world, the Yoi Full Gospel Church, was just convicted of fraud and tax evasion, and his son as well. His son went to jail, and the head pastor, who's now retired, uh, I think had a suspended sentence or something. So there are just as many scandals. But to be a disciple is a process uh, for within the church, for, for Christians, at least ideally put, is is to be on the, to, to have a promise, basically, a promise of development, a promise of advancement, a kind of promise that's not stuck in uh, the past institutional forms of the school, but rather is sort of pitched towards the future, to use Joel Robbins' phrase. Um, and um, even with the scandals of being a disciple of Jesus in these, in, in, these, in these churches, just based on association with the church, one still has the sense that the church is the place where discipleship is actually uh, cultivated and real, and then they can do this through their voices. Great, thank you. And, and you talk about in discussing um, who gets to occupy the role of singers at churches, you talk about the importance of differentials in terms of class, money, gender, and also the importance of soloists um, as figures here. Now, one of the things that um, this chapter talks about as well um, 
that I won't ask you to talk too much about purely in the interest of time, but that I want to mention is the process of negotiation among these different institutions, right? And the kinds of difficulties that that poses for individual singers. But it's not just movement across um, these two institutions that you're opening up here. It's also movement from to and from different social spaces within any one of those institutions. And in describing the kind of transformation that happens vocally, when individuals, individual students here in the example you give us, move to and from different social registers, even just in the context of the school, you raise a concept that you call qualic tuning. Now, because this is one of many concepts in the book that I think has legs, um, so to speak, that's something that is potentially going to be of deep interest to readers who don't necessarily work on South Korea or East Asian studies, but might be interested more broadly in the kinds of conceptual um, apparatus, uh, the, the various kinds of conceptual apparatus that you're raising here. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What's qualic tuning, and what kind of work is that doing for you in this part of the book? Well, I had a I had a real problem of figuring out analytically how to talk about these abstract qualities of things like cleanliness and or uh, suffering or something like that that seem to be attributed to let's say the voice, but then to um, to deal with that I'll try to make this quick uh, to deal with that in terms of its actual ongoing manifestation in real practice right to be able to say something is happening here that people are calling clean. And it's a sensuous quality. It's ongoing. And, and this is what we generally call qualia, not as these sort of uh, ideas of quality in the mind, but as real intersubjective points of orientation. That is, you and I might orient to the quality of cleanliness via the qualia of voices, actual voices, uh, these sort of instantiations of quality. And in qualic tuning, I was looking at I was trying to move from these abstractions of cleanliness or of tension or of um, uh, 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 suffering to the, the 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 very real and practical ways in which the quality of voices get manipulated according to larger frameworks of quality. So when it came to qualic tuning, it was really, at least in that chapter, it was looking at not only how students would, let's say, orient to one another and to their professors based on their momentary position of status, which is formally marked in Korean language based on all the honorifics, just as in Japanese and to some extent Javanese and these other languages. But it's also quite apparent in the more, um, uh, you might say, paralinguistic or perilinguistic uh, quality, the quality of, of, of pitch and nasality and tension of carriage of the body and these kinds of things that get manipulated quite quickly and quite effectively depending on who you're talking to. And it happens all over the world. In Korea, it's highly, highly visible, and uh, and you can hear it as well very clearly. And so when people moved between the different schools, I found that when they were in uh, the, the church uh, as sort of privileged soloists and disciples, uh, let's say exemplary disciples of Jesus, their singing style was often quite different from even if they were singing, singing similar material than if they were in the school where they were surrounded by peers, some above, some below, professors. And it wasn't just, I couldn't just say, oh, they were nervous or they were singing for a different audience, but rather they were adjusting their whole kind of social position in terms of their vocalization and various other qualia to achieve a kind of quality or set of qualities in performance. And speaking of speaking for an audience, that actually moves us really nicely into the next chapter. Chapter 6 is a chapter called The Voice of Homecoming, and it offers an analysis of what you call the homecoming recital. I think the best way into this is just to ask you, can you, t can you describe and explain what a homecoming recital is for listeners who may not be familiar with this concept? And then we can use that to get into the importance um, of this in the larger context of the argument of this chapter. Sure. Um, a home, a kriyuk um, uh, That's for a, specifically a homecoming um, vocal recital. There are also homecoming recitals um, for uh, instruments as well. But in general, to be a professional musician of this sort in in Korea, one needs to study abroad. In order for one to study abroad, one needs a certain amount of money or support or moxie. And um, students are expected to leave if they're to have a career and they're expected to leave for a number of years. And then when they come back, there's a kind of uh, celebration of their return. But what I argue in this chapter is that it's not actually a celebration, but it is a kind of event of reestablishing oneself as a new sort of person in Korea. And it consists of basically spending thousands of dollars to rent a um, recital hall 
in one of the major um, art centers in Seoul, spending thousands of dollars to on clothing, spending thousands of dollars on um, uh, marketing material so that it appears to be a professional recital. That is, you are dressed up in a bow tie or a ball gown, and you have flyers, you have tickets. The tickets are for sale. They cost anywhere from I don't know, to sometimes ten thousand won, but ten bucks to you know forty bucks, fifty bucks, depending. And um, they could be in small or large spaces. And the whole thing is constructed as a kind of professional return. And now I'm a, a real professional performing singer, except that there's no paying audience. Practically no one buys a ticket for this thing. It's given out. Tickets are given out to all friends, families. And the larger one's social network, the larger the audience one can have. The more money one has, the more p- tickets one can buy, the larger the, social, the, the recital hall they can purchase. And it's basically a recital like any other recital of art songs and arias. The big difference um, here is that it always ends with an – almost always ends, we'll say, with – with with uh, a hymn or Christian song that you have an hour maybe more of generally secular European classical music, opera arias and art songs, and then after one or two or three encores, which may be opera arias or the same thing you'd sung all evening, everyone knows it's the end when the hymn comes, and that's actually the only song that's actually sung for the audience. Everything else is more or less uh, a kind of performance of one's professionalism but not really directed at an audience because the audience are all friends and family, but it's that hymn that is local and meaningful to everyone generally in the room because of the connection of Christianity for just about everybody in the room. And this is a really striking image, right? I mean, the, the, you describe here how most of the homecoming recital prior to this, you know, people are on their cell phones sometimes, kids are you know, crawling in the aisles. I mean, people aren't really necessarily paying attention. They're there out of some sort of social obligation. And then this encore happens, and it's completely transformative. Um, so since this is really, in many ways, it seems like the heart of what's happening here, can you just talk a little bit more about that? What about this encore is so transformative. Um, why is that so significant as part of this moment of in this kind of ritualistic moment? Well, I, I, I'll start from the the macro. My my larger argument, I guess, one of my larger arguments in the book is that um, this whole process and this whole history and institutionalization of Songok in South Korea that I've been describing is not only oriented toward the future, but it's oriented toward a future in which Korea is the spiritual Christian center of the world. Where Korea now is the second most, let's see, only behind the U.S. in sending out missionaries. And it has the 10 of the 11, oh, this is what the newspapers say, 10 of the 11 largest Protestant churches in Seoul, depending on whether you believe the membership numbers or not. But the narrative is that Korea is the new, the new center of Christian activity and will lead the world as, as a Christian nation and Christianize the, the world. And so this homecoming recital, and so in, in that narrative, the Songok voice, while Obviously, um, having come from, if you come from Europe and the United States in a sort of historical sense, is reappropriated as the true voice of the Christian Korea for many of these singers. It is the natural voice. It is the God-given voice. And it's the, the voice of evangelism for a large portion of Christians in South Korea. So when you arrive at the, when you arrive at the hymn, in the final moments of this homecoming recital that's cost so much money and is, is part of a person, an individual's career, a family's career, a whole school's career, if they're very proud of this person. We can find narratives um, all over this. But when they arrive at that final encore, it is an, almost an assertion that we are all here as Christians in the present singing with our natural voice out to the world. We're all here, and it's for everyone in this room, and it's for everyone in the world. It's no longer the voice of the other, but it's our voice. Thank you so much. Um, Now, as we move to the final body chapter before the conclusion, we move to a chapter that looks at feeling explicitly. And and specifically, it looks carefully at the notion of what you translate here as heart-mind to understand what it means to sing with feeling in Christian Korea. And it's not what we might initially think of as singing with feeling. And so can you um, just briefly, so that we have a sense of the most important kind of work that this chapter is doing in the context of your larger argument, can you explain what's meant by this notion of heart-mind and what kind of work this is doing here in terms of the larger argument you're making in the chapter? Sure. I'll try and make it very quick. Um, Take your time. Take whatever time you need. 
this is this is the most uh, this is the riskiest chapter for someone like me. And so it was really exciting to write and really difficult to write. Um, and it's basically a, what we call an ethnographic lexicography and trying to take a term or a concept and not just do a structural analysis of it, not just do a textual analysis of it, but to follow that term in actual ritual sites and everyday sites to figure out how it anchors all sorts of behaviors and concepts. And this concept that I settled on was malum, which is a kind of gloss of the Chinese shin, shim in Korean, which is often either heart or mind or some combination of both. And so what I tried to do is that I had um, spent all this time talking about suffering and joy and sadness and uh, peace and all of these kind of uh, feelings or sentiments that may be bodily manifest and may be... Um, um, evidenced through kinds of vocal sounds or other behaviors. And I didn't want to just talk about those emotions. Uh, those were there. Um, but I found that most of, most, you know, um, study of emotions settles on those terms. And what I thought was to take this notion of the heart mind, which, which my informants and friends constantly used and explore the actual locus of where people said they experienced feelings, sensations, emotions, so on and so forth. And I found that it was very closely connected to the emergence of a kind of Protestant speech register where Malm, not only in Christian practice, is the, the link between a, a person and deity, but also in the emergence of Bible translation and the emergence of um, uh, hymns and the, and the emergence of just everyday speech in terms of a Christian register, that Malm becomes constantly mobilized as the place where kind of pure feeling and also thought and dreams and hopes and wishes can be um, entertained. And so the mom then becomes the kind of embodied embodied um, emotional and sentimental place of the kinds of feelings I've talked about throughout the chapter and a way for people to understand themselves to be connected one to another emotionally. Great. Thank you so much. And one of the really interesting things, at least for me, that's happening here in under, trying to understand how and where Malum is being performed by these singers is it's not, um, you know, expressed with as much feeling as possible so that you can stir the feelings of the audience, right? It's rather, it's more embodying a kind of calmness. And I think you, as you put it, a maturity that allows you to stir the emotions of others more than a kind of out of control. Look at me. I'm so emotional, you know, singing with feeling, um, might be able to do. So it's this tension um, that's not tense, ironically. That which is exactly, which, which is, sorry, which is exactly what the ideology of, of let's say, European-style classical singing is, to have an untense tension, that's precisely, in that way. Fabulous. Thank you. So, Nick, just in the interest of time, what I'll do is just speak briefly about the conclusion rather than asking you to talk a little bit about it. But I just want to mention um, one of the really interesting things that's happening in the conclusion for listeners who are broadly um, interested in this idea of advancement and what you call the chronotope of advancement is that you use the conclusion to kind of look forward and to consider the preceding study in the context of a state of striving, an idea of striving, and the concomitant kind of exhaustion um, narrative that goes alongside um, a narrative of striving, or pali-pali, quickly-quickly, as you put it here, uh, which struck me because I'm interested in onomatopoeia and in sort of sonic words that evoke sensations. And so Pali Pali quickly, quickly really does that. And so the conclusion really looks ahead towards striving and advancement and contextualizes what you've been doing within that. So um, thank you, Nick, for spending so much of your time so early in the day for you in talking about a book that I should just, you know, flat out say I really loved and found really, really inspiring. And I hope that's clear from the conversation. Now, we didn't have a chance to talk about so much of what's going on, and all of the chapters are so rich and are full of case studies and people and concepts and um, treatments and narratives that we only barely scratched the surface of. Now, is there anything in particular, given all that, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Um. Uh, not, I think you did a fit. Thank you, first of all, for taking the time to, to do this and, and asking such great questions and allowing me to blather on about, you know, about them. Um, I don't have much else to say other than I think, um, 
one way that I now read this book, having you know, written it and gone back on it, is 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 a larger kind of question about how um, sociality emerges in relation to sensuous qualities. And there's been a lot of work on the senses, on emotions, on affect, on embodiment, on song, and all, all these various kind of categories of of, of our our. our sociocultural lives historically and, and presently. But I, I realized reading back on this that, that it, it was a kind of project not only about the voice and the body and about emotions and about Korea, but also kind of more general how how social groups are oriented around these ritual sites of dense, um, sensuous qualities, all these different ways in which, whether they're smell or, or taste or auditory or whatever they might be um, construed that way. And so when I now read this book, I see it in, in a sense as starting with like, you know, Budetige and, and all of the kind of, you know, the kind of old um, post-war uh, spicy food to the kind of purification at the end is, is a bigger question for me, I guess. So I would encourage readers to read it also in that sense if they wanted to. Thank you. And so now that the book is out and congratulations on what um, in every way is a really fantastic book, what's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you and what are you working on now? Um, right now I'm working on, um, I'm in Seoul working on uh, communal prayer, which is a kind of extension of the current current project and different ways in which people understand vocal prayer, non-vocal prayer, embodied prayer. Um, and, and as I said, it's a sort of extension of, of this book. And uh, But the, the next big project is really the, the point I think I just made about reading this book. It's a larger study and a larger conceptualization of sensuous qualities and sociality that draws on ethnography um, of Korea. And in some sense, it takes a different turn if... If um, if this entire book was really focused on um, how uh, a certain s- stratum of Protestant Christians try to um, purify and uh, the voice and the self, um, now I, I, I'm looking more generally and beyond Christianity, although still including it, on the process of intensification and forms of intensity across multiple semiotic channels and the kinds of sociality that emerge in relation to those uh, those events. Well, that sounds fantastic, too. So That's very vague. I'm sorry. but <laughs> No, no, it's great. So I'll look forward to talking with you about whatever book comes out of any of those projects um, in the future. And thank you so much for talking with me. It's really been a pleasure. And the book is super inspiring. So thank you. Thank you, too. And likewise, it was a great conversation. Thanks. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.